This is Pastor Wallace's last week leading this class, but uh, this class doesn't end. We have four additional weeks um, that Zev Rosenberg will be leading us in with topics of the forerunners of the Reformation, the second topic of focus on Martin Luther, uh, a third, the focus on the Reformed tradition with John Calvin and John Knox, then the Radical Reformation, and then a concluding topic on Ecclesia Reformata, or why we should continue our Reformation. So we continue to celebrate this historic event in the uh, history of our church, and we hope you'll continue to enjoy this class and be meaningful to you. Let's open in prayer. Father God, we, we study... We look at symbols, we debate words, we put together our theology. But help us to know that the true word is the word of your Son in our hearts. While we proclaim out loud our love for you, might it be a reflection of the love and relationship that we know inside us, that our theology be one around the world, that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. Amen. Amen. And thank you, Dan. And good morning to everyone. So glad you all could join us this morning. Uh, and I see we have some new faces in, uh, in the class this morning. So I just wanted to remind you that we are doing a four-week uh, breakneck speed run through the book of confessions. And uh, since I do see some new faces, let's just remember, what is this book of confessions, right? It is a compilation of documents going back to the early church, the Nicene, Apostles' Creed, all the way to confessions uh, that were written in the 1980s that we affirm and we uphold as a denomination that these are uh, part of our church constitution, how, uh, what we believe, and uh, how we are to order ourselves theologically. Uh, and so we, we don't just invent ourselves every year anew. We build on the tradition going back uh, centuries and millennia. So uh, we have already talked about the early creeds of the church, as I said, Nicene, Apostles, and Scott's Confession. Uh, last, uh, last week, we focused on Heidelberg and Second Helvetic. And this week, uh, we'll talk particularly about the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, the Theological Declaration of Barman, Confession of 1967, and the, the brief statement of faith is so brief that we're not even actually going to talk about it today. That's part of your homework, um, and if you open up the packets there, uh, I have, I failed to, failed to uh, put page numbers here, but a little way, a little past uh, halfway through, you'll see the brief statement of faith. If we have time, we will share this whole thing um, together. But if we don't, there it is for you, for your own edification. And on the right, in that text box, uh, that is my own uh, um, commentary on what is going on in the confession, what is important, what should you notice as you're reading through it. I could have written a whole book. Actually, there have been whole books written on the uh, brief statement of faith, however brief it is. So um, that's just a, a quick analysis there. And then um, as we're paging through that, you'll see on the second to last page, um, this is a review of the Book of Confessions by subject matter. So uh, I think I shared the very first week that uh, one of my favorite classes in seminary was actually Confessing the Faith Today, where we all looked at the whole Book of Confessions. Now this was before Belhar was added. Uh, and at that time, I was still an American Baptist, and I was the only Baptist in the room. And they're thinking, why are you all, why are you here among all these Presbyterians? Well, uh, we, can, we can answer that one, right? Um, because, because the Lord and the Spirit was drawing me here uh, and to serve uh, in the Presbyterian Church USA. So uh, this comes, the second to last page review by subject matter comes from that class that I took uh, several years ago. So if you wanna know what the Book of Confessions has to say on uh, resurrection and eschatology, there are some good places to look, right? NC 1.3. Nicene Creed 1.3, 1 
or BSF 72 to 80, look at line 72 to 80. So that's just for your reference. Okay, let us ask, what is the chief end of man? Very good, okay, and that comes from? Westminster uh, Confession, actually it comes from the, the catechism, um, but yeah, it's all the same kind of, uh, kind of document here. So uh, there on page two, Westminster Confessions and Catechisms. So this document that is summed up uh, by, by uh, this banner here on the left, Westminster Confessions and Catechisms came out of England, written in the uh, 1640s. Uh, it was actually the House of Commons that adopted an ordinance calling for, quote, the settling of the government and liturgy of the Church of England in a manner most agreeable to God's holy word and most apt to procure the peace of the church at home and nearer abroad. So uh, there was a group called together, 150 people. They convened in Westminster Abbey, and we are in Westminster Hall, right? So we, we are... Uh, we are, I, if I had to guess, I, I would guess that we are named after the Westminster Confession, which is named after the Westminster Abbey. So we are standing literally in the, the history of tradition here. Uh, in the 1640s, we won't go through the whole history lesson, we just don't have the time, but there was a lot of a political uh, uh, religious strife. Just as we talked about last week, everything was going on in the continent of Europe. Uh, between the Lutherans and the Reformers and uh, followers of Zwingli, and there was all that was that was going on in the continent. But there was other stuff going on uh, in in England at the time, right? There was uh, a state church before there was a Reformation, uh, because if you remember, well, that's history class. You'll get there. Um, so. Uh, this group together of 150 people, they held 11, over 1,100 sessions. I cannot imagine. This took a very, very long time. Um, and these delegates together created five documents. The Westminster Confession of Faith uh, to serve as a guide and doctrine. The Shorter Catechism. Remember, catechism is purpose, primary purpose is to teach. Uh, the shorter one was for youth. The larger one was supposed to serve as an aid in preaching. And then they, and those three appear in our book of confessions. And then they also created two documents, the Directory for Public Worship, which talked about uh, how to govern the Presbyterian Church, and then also a Psalter uh, to provide biblical psalms to be sung in worship. So they wrote a confession, catechisms, uh, directory for worship, and a hymnal, right? So they're, they're not messing around. Uh, in just a few, a few short years, uh, they had to meet that often because they had a lot to get accomplished. Um, the theological emphases and elements here in Westminster, it is, it is a big document. There's a lot going on, but if we had to uphold, uh, lift up what are some of the emphases in this document, they would be the sovereignty of God, the idea that God is in control, there's also infralapsarianism, uh, and that's a good bananagrams word, so I would, or quite, not quite a Scrabble word, you don't have that many letters in your hand for Scrabble, or else I'd say Scrabble. But bananagrams, you get a lot more letters. So, um, so infralapsarianism is this uh, theological idea, uh, in, and it's set against, in contrast to superlapsarianism, which you'll see both words here on the board to my left. Infralapsarianism is the idea that God created the world, people fell into sin, and then God decided or decreed to send Christ for their salvation. Superlapsarianism is, is slightly different, saying that God, but from the beginning, before humanity fell, uh, that before that, uh, God decided to send Christ, right? So Christ would have come maybe either way, if we had uh, eaten of the fruit or not. Um, and that's just a very cut and dry, uh, simple explanation of infralapsarianism, but Westminster uh, Confession and Catechisms lean into infralapsarianism. Also addresses the authority of scripture, 
double predestination, which is one of the stickiest points of theology in Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterianism, that most people, uh, I don't think anyone loves it. I was gonna say you love it or you hate it, but no, most people, uh, they might accept it, but most people don't like it. The idea, predestination, is the idea that uh, God is predestines us for salvation. Well, the uh, implication there becomes that then God also predestines some not for salvation. That's the double, right? So some people would argue you can't have one without the other. Love and the marriage, sorry, I'm, I don't know where I am this morning. Okay, um, no, some people would argue you can't have uh, God predestining some for salvation and some not. Um, they have to be together, but um, others would argue that there is, there is free will, right? The Methodists say foreknowledge, God knows in advance. Um, anyhow, this is a sticky point in Westminster. And then um, the last emphasis is glorifying God in obedience. So here are just some key passages I wanted to lift up uh, for our, our uh, edification this morning. Uh, section six, Point zero zero eight reads this, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. That's a fun, that's a fun word, right? So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal onto them. Okay, so what is this telling us? I'm gonna open it to the floor. What, what do we see here that may be problematic or? Language, okay. Interpretation, so language and interpretation. Say more about this language though. What languages of the Bible? It's saying some languages are inspired. Yes? The Greek and the Hebrew. So there's this idea that the English is a translation and there's some separation, there's some difference in the inspiration of the scripture in English. Uh, and if there's ever any controversy, let's go back to the original languages of the Greek and the Hebrew, right? Old uh, Hebrew Bible being written in Hebrew and some Aramaic and the majority of the New Testament in uh, Koine Greek. So. Uh, it, we don't really encounter this all, all that much anymore. Um, although you will hear Dave and me uh, preaching and using some Greek or Hebrew phrases there, we kind of have moved, wh while we still think that there is inspiration in the scriptures, we think that the Holy Spirit is still active in translation and um, there's more going on. Um, the problem with this is this particular passage, which I think is, is fascinating. We could talk about this the whole class. The problem is um, really that um, most of you have not had Hebrew and Greek, right? So to say that the Hebrew and Greek Bible is the inspired word of God uh, takes, uh, really takes it out of the hands of the layperson who doesn't have access to Greek and Hebrew or doesn't know Greek and Hebrew. Um, so, uh, but an interesting line nonetheless. Uh, then uh, six, the, the next line down, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels, isn't that fascinating, are predestinated, yes, apparently that's a word, onto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. So this is the predestination, double predestination part that we were talking about, although, if you notice, uh, they don't say predestined to everlasting death. They use a slightly different word, foreordained, and maybe that's how they are uh, able to sleep at night, and they, uh, I'm not sure. Um, we are, we'll skip over the next section. Uh, then 6.109 there. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith and, or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring an, impl an, um, an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. You're thinking, why is he reading that? That is, I don't even know what he just said. Um, 
this is, believe it or not, one of the most well-known parts of the Westminster Confession. So if you didn't understand it, maybe take it home and reread that a few times. Uh, we won't even uh, dig into it, but to say that it is one of the, historically one of the most well-known and, and uh, analyzed passages. Then uh, from, so we'll, moving into the uh, catechisms, right? So these are, um, talking a lot about, we're talking about the same topics, but they're just set in simpler terms for the sake of questions and answers, right? For the sake of teaching and preaching. What is the chief end of man? Some of you already knew this phrase. You didn't even have to look uh, at the packet. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what I, I, I talked about last week. The catechisms are really, really good for sake of devotion. And not just for reading and saying it in your head, but to really put it on in your mouth and say these words. What is the chief end of man? man man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? So the catechism serves to, to focus our faith and to help us understand more about uh, God and how we are to respond to God. Uh, then uh, I thought this was quite interesting. Uh, in the discussion about the commandments, uh, they ask, what is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is, thou shalt not kill. Great, right? That is the sixth commandment. But then the very next question of the uh, catechism says, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment. Well, wouldn't we just say you sh just shouldn't kill, right? Period, that's it? Not quite. So, uh, and this, this underscores that uh, interpretation of scripture and proclamation uh, in the word um, goes beyond the page a little uh, to uh, have present day um, uh, influence. So it says here, the duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. Well, that's quite different. Or not just, and I think they mean that metaphorically, not just literally. I think that's, um, uh, if I'm reading it correctly, and maybe uh, I'll, I'll talk to one of these guys who wrote this in heaven and, and they'll correct me, but um, if I'm reading this correctly, this, this is talking more about uh, taking life away from someone as in, I, I read this as discrimination in some sense, right? Taking um, um, advantage of someone uh, and we can read this more, but, uh, and there's, there's, there's quite an interesting line there about um, bear, the patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, uh, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, psychic, sleep and labor and recreation. Uh, they had some interesting ideas there. So uh, the rest of that page is the overview of content for the whole of the confession, uh, 33 sections, and then the questions there are dealt, the, the larger and shorter catechism are dealt with there in the box. Uh, and as you know, we always talk about what comes first in any confession. What is primary? Here for Westminster, we know authority of Scripture is a big deal. So it shouldn't surprise that of the Holy Scripture is the very first section. And from there, they build on the theology uh, for the, the following 32 sections. Uh, and you can look at the whole list and uh, even just looking at some of these things tells you about what is going on in that day, what is important to these people, and what's the order of, of things. So the very last is the last judgment. Well, that makes sense. That can go chronologically. Uh, of the state of men and of after death and of the resurrection of the dead, that makes sense. But then 31, of synods and councils. You wouldn't quite expect that to be right before the state of men after death. Um, but uh, some interesting... Uh, stuff there. Before we move on, let us talk about the uh, banner behind me. So, mm -hmm. so the banner here, there are three long panels here, one, two, and three, and that is actually uh, the way that the, uh, ba this banner embodies the Trinity. There's also, of course, this Trinitarian, tri there's this triangle here with an eye representing God, but one, two, three, three panels also for the Trinity. 
And the eye of God, of God the Father, um, actually has a, a, another meaning of providence and control of life, that God controls all of life and history, which is a dominant view in Westminster. Then we see this crown at the top, this beautiful crown, um, and, uh, which represents God's rule. We've got a Bible here behind, as we talked about, Westminster, uh, really big on authority of scripture, and of course, Alpha, and omega, beginning and end, and then we get the three crosses. Here's another symbol of the Trinity, right? So uh, that is Westminster. Okay, do we need a coffee break? Are we okay? Okay. Um, moving on, uh, let us talk about the theological declaration of Barman. And if you have questions, I'd ask you to save them till the end because we've got a lot to run through today. So the theological declaration of Barman came out of uh, Germany in the 1930s. Uh, if you know your history at all, we know a, a little bit about what was going on in Germany in the 1940s, but the 30s, there was the start of Hitler's rise to power and uh, the discrimination of, of Jews, and, and but, but there was this strange thing going on in the church um, that there was a group called the German Christians uh, that were upholding Hitler in his uh, re repression of the Jews and his uh, absolute uh, grab, power grab. And um, most Germans took this union of Christianity, nationalism, and militarism for granted. And so patriotic sentiments were equated with Christian truth. And German Christians, exalted the racially pure nation and the rule of Hitler as God's will for the German people. Okay, so we talked about Belhar a few weeks ago and how there was that group of people who, and the church, who upheld apartheid, the separation of, uh, of races in South Africa. And in a similar way, but 50 years earlier, uh, there was a group within the church, a large group within the, uh, the German church, the German Christians, who, who supported Hitler and his political ideals. Nevertheless, some in the, uh, in the church resisted. And among those uh, few determined leaders uh, were a group of pastors and the theologian, and you see there on the bottom right, if, you're, if you have the pages open there, um, the one who may, you may uh, know best is Karl Barth, who has been called the, uh, the, the most insightful theologian of the 20th century. He has written more than you can read in a lifetime, so I don't know how he did it. Um, and there he is on the, on the bottom right there. With, uh, he appeared on the t cover of Time Magazine. And just a little quote here, he says, I take the Bible far too seriously to take it literally. Um, and uh, Martin Niemuller, who most of us probably don't know, but we probably know something he said. First they came for the Jews, but they did nothing because I am not a Jew. Then they came for the socialists, but I did nothing because I'm not a socialist. They came for the Catholics, but I did nothing because I'm not a Catholic. And finally they came for me, but by then there was no one left to help me. So that comes from Martin Niemuller. And these two gentlemen with a host of others uh, were responsible for crafting the document we know and we have in our book of confessions known as the Theological Declaration of Barman. So it was written in 1934 uh, and um, really the goal was to draw the line in the sand to say we stand in opposition to what is going on politically with Hitler and uh, these German Christians who are in support of it. We don't think you are in the right with what you are doing. And so, uh, and so you'll see here, it, it's actually a short document. You could, you could read it in half an hour, just one sitting. Um, their structure is that they take uh, a verse or two of scripture, they expound upon it, and then they say, we reject what, uh, we uphold this, this scripture and we expound upon the scripture, this is, what's, this is what we should believe, and we reject what's going on. Uh, and German Christians should be reminded of this verse and this exposition of this verse. So as an example, uh, in 8.10 there, 
the verses from John. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, from John 14. Truly, truly, I tell you, he who does not enter by the, sh- the, the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So they expound upon that to say, Jesus Christ, as he is attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. Therefore, we reject the false doctrine as though the church could and would have to acknowledge as a source of its proclamation apart from and besides this one word of God still other events, powers, figures, and truths as God's revelation. So let's unpack this for a minute. What do we think this is talking about, this rejection? This is the time for audience participation, if we have. (laughs) Yep, Fred? Yes, so uh, rejecting the alliance between the German Christians and the Nazi regime. And I'm actually glad you said that because I, you reminded me I failed to say something earlier. So German Christians, these are the ones who are in bed with the Nazis. It's an easy way to say it, right? But not, not entirely true. But, and then the Confessing Church, these are the ones who wrote Barman or, or after Barman was written, this is the group that kind of came out of that. Um, yeah, I'll just say that. So really, it's saying what's going on now is not right. We should not stand uh, in solidarity with Hitler and the Nazis and against the Jews. In fact, we should stand with our Jewish brothers and sisters. We should uh, stand ag- against the discrimination of these peoples. Um, and uh, going on, I, I think... We could read this, the verses and the expositions, but I think that we reject uh, is sections are so uh, powerful that I that's what I want and unique uh, that I want to let's read eight point one five together. We reject the false doctrine. Do we see that part? Eight point one five. Let's read that together. We reject the false doctrine as though there were areas of our life in which we would not belong to Jesus Christ, but to other lords. Areas in which we would not need justification and sanctification through him. Right? They might as well write Hitler's name in here, because I think this is, this is really getting to the point. <coughs> that... Um, excuse me. Um, but that we would belong to Hitler? No. We are Christians. We confess that we belong to Jesus Christ. Pam, did you have a question? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think they're responding directly to these German Christians. <coughs> yeah, I think it's directly responding to the situation at hand. Yeah, it is a little strangely worded, but the implication is that other people are uh, almost upholding Hitler as a lord uh, and putting politics over um, over faith, but still calling it faith, right? So we talked about a few weeks ago, and this intersects with, we could just leave this in Germany. We could. But um, if we are to bring this into the modern era, we've had all these uh, discussions, and there's all, been all that uh, controversy about Confederate flags, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were creating the Belhar uh, banners. And I thought it's so, oh, a whole picture. Look at that. <laughs> really that bad? Thank you, Dan. Uh, we talked about the uh, Confederate flag, and not so much 
the flag itself, but what it represents. And the idea that there is um, um, present today, there is this strange militarism and patriotism and faith, and we in the United States, uh, we, we meld them together, um, and I don't always know if it's for the best, right? And I think if um, Bart and Niemuller and all these guys were alive today and living in the in, uh, United States, they may very well have the theological declaration of, let's say, Canton, right? Um, that we would, they would write a new declaration and say, we don't think that uh, this is the way it should be. Jesus Christ is first um, above, above uh, our flag, Confederate or US flag. We are Christians before anything else. One of the, <clears throat> I can't remember which one of the signers of the Barman Declaration it was. It might have been Niemöller, but he wrote a book which the translated English title is Jesus is My Leader. Oh. However, it was published in German, in Germany, as Jesus ist mein Führer. Oh my. Mm. There you go. And imagine the political provocation that that represents oh, in the yeah. middle of Nazi Germany. Oh, sure. Whew. Well, it's just like, as Shane Claiborne just write a few years ago, Jesus for president, um, not suggesting that we should actually vote Jesus in. That'd be hard to do. But um, the same kind of idea. There is this tension between politics and faith and what comes first. As faithful Christians who uphold Jesus Christ as Lord, that means he is Lord over all of areas of our life, right? Uh, and uh, that is what these, these statements say. Um, okay, are there, you know what, we're just gonna, we could talk about this longer. I, I, the one thing I wanna particularly note here is that Barman, the purpose of Barman uh, in its time is not to give a whole confession of faith, right? They don't talk about scripture, they don't talk about uh, predestination or anything like that. The purpose is really to say, we are, we've already got those confessions, we've got those creeds of the church, but, but here something special is going on and we need to make an additional statement about this. And so, that's why they wrote it. Uh, before we move on to confession of 67, Let us, oops, almost forgot here. Uh, this is a really easy one, right? Uh, you can see here this banner for Barman uh, is, uh, has a cross at the bottom, uh, and the cross is standing in flames, right? And the fire could represent suffering and death which follows from defense of the faith against tyranny, as for some of the Barman signers. But the cross still survives. It's, it's, it hasn't burned down, right? It reminds me of that beautiful verse in Exodus 3, right? The bush was burning but was not consumed. Here, the cross may be burning, but it is not consumed. The cross and the Lord stands victorious in spite of uh, anything else going on. And then here, uh, it's, it's a little hard to see, but there is this outline of a swastika. Why is it hard to see? Because it's crossed out. We reject Nazism. Now, now the Nazi symbol, if you know, uh, didn't, Hitler didn't invent it. He actually stole it from somebody else. It actually used to, it's an Eastern symbol, right? Um, meaning peace. Um, so it's kind of funny that uh, we today don't associate it with that at all. We associate it with Nazism, right? So this goes again to show that a symbol only has power when we understand it a certain way. So the Confederate flag, going back to that point, Confederate flag in itself, there's no problem with it. It's what it represents, what it means for us today. How do most people understand it, right? Same thing, the Nazi symbol, the swastika wasn't always a Nazi symbol, but we today understand it as such, and so uh, we reject it with Barman. Okay, if you'll turn the page, we're at the middle of the packet.
And if you ever hear any of our confessions in which you hear the phrases space and time, nuclear, chemical, biological weapons, birth control, and or overpopulation, you know which confession you're in, and that is confession of 1967. So, um, uh, let me make sure. I think there's probably only two or three of us in the room who weren't around at, uh, in 1967. Uh, okay, oh, okay, there's only four of us in the room. So, uh, you will, I will not tell you the history of what was going on, um, but you surely, uh, you surely know that it wasn't the uh, most peaceful time in the United States. There was a lot going on. And at the time, um, it actually started back in the late 50s, the General Assembly, which is the national body of the Presbyterian Church USA, well, it wasn't quite that back then, but uh, they were, uh, this, the General Assembly came together and said, we need a new Westminster Shorter Catechism, but we need to update the language. Okay, well, so they, they called together this committee, and the committee said, you know what? We don't need to do that. We need to write a whole new brief confession. And they did this for a few different reasons. They felt that the church must confess, its, confess the faith afresh for this time. They shared a critical view of scripture that recognized historical and cultural influences. Uh, there was this theological renaissance that had brought fresh and dynamic expression of the reformed tradition. They shared a belief that the church needed to address profound current social events and they believed that those Westminster standards were dated, harsh, and silent to contemporary issues. And so, they came together and they wrote C67. Okay, so uh, again, we have some key passages here, and this actually continues on for a third page. Uh, uh, if you look very briefly at the next page over, it's the overview of the content. They did a fine job outlining this. Um, Preface, confession, God's work of reconciliation, grace of Jesus, Jesus Christ, sin of man, love of God, right? It's very ordered. Um, uh, and uh, yes, so let's step, uh, step back here to these key passages. 9.9, uh, .9, can we read just that, um, just the bold portion there together of 9.9, .9, starting with God's reconciling act together? God's reconciling act in Jesus Christ is a mystery. and victory over the powers of evil, and we can stop there. Okay, so you're probably thinking, why are we reading this? Uh, why is this important? Why are they saying it at all? Um, and the, the history of theology, uh, particularly um, trying to, we're, one of the big things that we've tried to figure out in the last 2,000 years is what really happened when Jesus died on the cross? Uh, it's one of the fundamental questions, right? What really happened? The answer is, I don't think we can fully know because I think it, it is quite, a, there is a mystery there. Yes, he died for our sins, but how? Uh, and some people through the history of the church have said, oh, well, it was like, and this is even, this, some of this is even scriptural, right? It was like a scapegoat. So he took our sin with him and then he died and was resurrected helping me out this week, thank you. Um, and uh, some say it was, he was like a, serving as a priest. Uh, this is atonement by a priest, ransom of a slave, payment of a debt, vicarious satisfaction. This is, an, this is really a whole nother class. We couldn't even, uh, uh, we could barely scratch the surface by talking about just the rest of the hour here. But it's, it's called modes or methods of atonement. And there's at least seven different uh, modes of atonement throughout history. Some are m uh, more modern, some are ancient. The point is that this particular uh, point in 9.9 .9 opens the door 
for there to be multiple. I read a book a few years ago on uh, Toman's uh, theories, and it said the reason that there are so many modes, and some people say this is the only one, this is the only one, this is, they said, really, it's a constellation of them together. The reason scripture says this and this and this is because it's hard to define. It's hard to know exactly what happened. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. What does that mean? We don't exactly know, but um, this is an interesting um, responding to uh, discussions and, and conflicts of the day in circles, theological circles, opening multiple modes of atonement theory. Uh, jumping down to 919, just that very first line, out of Israel, God in due time raised up Jesus. This is, you, you might think, oh, what's the, why, what's the big deal? Why are we talking about this? It's a pretty big deal because um, there were generations of Christians um, who were against the Jews, right? Remember the Crusades? Uh, we, were, we tried to erase Jesus' Jewish identity and say only the Christians were still in God's covenant. And this is a really interesting move, a contemporary move, right, just 50 years ago this year, C67, 50 years ago. This was, um, this was finally accepted. And this um, roots the confession and our faith in the history of Israel encounters something called supersessionism. And supersessionism um, is the idea that um, God's covenant with Israel was only important and only valid until Jesus came around. And then, meh, God forgot about that covenant and God doesn't care about the Jewish people, he only cares about Christians. That is the idea of supersessionism, that the Jews have been superseded and Christians are the only faithful. Now here, out of Israel, God raised up Jesus. He was a fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. He gave history its meaning and direction and called the church to be his servant for the reconciliation of the world. So the way I read this, it says, no, no. We are rooted in this past. It do, it's not as explicit as I may want it to be, but I, I think it's, it builds the foundation so that we can counter that theology uh, to exclude our Jewish brothers and sisters. We don't want that, right? God's covenants are eternal. Just because there was a New Testament written doesn't mean that the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is invalid, no. It is still in force, as is the covenant that God made with the Israelites all those years ago. Jumping down to 9, uh, 9.29, um, this is all about uh, history, or excuse me, the uh, method of interpreting scripture. We already said this was uh, a main reason that C67 was written. I wanna read this in its entirety because there's a lot here. It says, the Bible is to be interpreted in the light of its witness to God's work of reconciliation in Christ. The scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, are nevertheless the words of men, conditioned by the language, thought forms, literary fashions of the places and times at which they were written. They reflect views of life, history, and the cosmos which were then current. The church, therefore, has an obligation to approach the scriptures with literary and historical understanding. As God has spoken his word in diverse cultural situations, the church is confident that he will continue to speak through the scriptures in a changing world and in every form of human culture. This is the most controversial piece of the whole of C67, and understandably so, right? Uh, the, the one thing you're never supposed to talk about in church is how do we interpret the Bible, right? Is it the word of God? Is it infallible, inerrant, and inspired, and how so? Because this is, uh, this is these are the kind of things that break churches apart, right? The, the uh, churches that have, been, that have left the denomination in the last several years or uh, have left, they, they say, over a difference in interpretation of scripture. 30, 40 years ago, uh, there was another move and another wave of churches that left because they claim over interpretation of scripture. So it's a big deal. Uh, and this particular um, 
as I said already, this is a controversial section. But whether or not we agree with it, it certainly makes us think. How do we approach scripture? How do we read, understand, and interpret it? Um, and it, even if we don't like the, the, the underlined part there that the scriptures are the words of men, even if we don't like that, what would it mean to open the Bible one day and imagine these are the words of men? How does that change our reading of it? Does it or does it not? Um, yeah, so that's a controversial line. Uh, and then, uh, jumping to the other side of the page, 9.44. In his reconciling love, God overcomes the barriers between brothers and breaks down every form of discrimination based on racial or ethnic difference, real or imaginary. The church is called to bring all men and women to receive and uphold one another as pers persons in all relationships of life employment, housing, education, leisure, marriage, family, church, and the exercise of political rights. Therefore, the church labors for the abolition of all racial discrimination and ministers to those injured by it, right? So um, if you aren't already reading The Warmth of Other Sons in preparation for the book study, book club this evening, I highly recommend it. My wife uh, turned me on to the book, and that's why we're reading it tonight, because she read it. And um, it has completely changed my understanding of the history of the United States and discrimination. And so even if you haven't read the book at all, I encourage you to come, bring a dish to share tonight, five to eight, as we'll talk about uh, discrimination. And what has the church's response been? not in, in Nazi-era Germany in the 30s, but today. What is going on in discrimination, in, in, in racial segregation between churches? We talked a few weeks ago, right? 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is? Most segregated hour of the week. Yeah. Most segregated hour of the week, right? So, um, it still continues today. But here, this, uh, talking about reconciliation in society, uh, this has parallels with Barman, but also anticipates Belhar, right? So there's these connections between 1960s, 1960s United States and Nazi-era Germany, and also later South Africa apartheid era. At the very end of that page, uh, 9.50, praise and prayer. I thought since... Uh, Unfortunately, nobody from the choir is here, but I think this is still a great line uh, to uphold. The arts, especially music and architecture, contribute to the praise and prayer of a Christian congregation when they help men to look beyond themselves to God and to the world, which is the object of his love. Right? So we have a beautiful church building. We have beautiful arts and music, banners behind me, um, and they all together contribute to the praise and prayer of our whole congregation. And they help us to look beyond ourselves to God. So uh, let us look now then at the banner for Confession of 67. You see, whoop. Can you see the banner, third one? So here's the third banner here, and this is the banner for C67. There is blue, red, and gold colors throughout, and this, uh, these colors are uh, representative of the official seal of the United Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. So some of you have been around long enough, you remember before this church was PCUSA, before there was the merger, this was a United Presbyterian Church, right? I actually was singing the, the funeral just yesterday, and the music I had had, was it Christ, Presbyter Christ United Presbyterian Church? Uh, stamped on it. So um, we were part of that church before the, the merger to the present day PCUSA. We have this hand at the top representing God reaching, God the Father reaching down into the world. That, of, that is repeated from the Nicene banner. You have this crown here uh, that is repeated from Westminster, right? They pulled that right over. 
uh, and the nail-scarred hand. It's kind of hard to see, but there is a hand right here with uh, a scar in the very middle, and that's to represent Jesus' hand and the death and victory of Christ as he reconciles the world. Then we have these four hands, one, two, three, four, and they are all four different colors, uh, and they are to represent reconciliation, the reconciling of the world at the foot of the cross. And then, because it's the space age and we're just a few years from going to the moon, right, we couldn't help it. We have a little Saturn down here, some planets, some stars. I think that might even be an alien head, I'm not sure. No, I don't think it is. Okay. Man on the moon, maybe? Oh, I don't know what that is. It's beautiful, whatever it is. The cheese, yes, right. Okay, now we have uh, very little time left. I don't want to uh, actually read through the brief statement of faith, but it is there for you. This, I will, sh I will share uh, one minute worth of things on the brief statement of faith. It was written in 1983 in response to that merger of the UPC USA and the PCUS. So those are the two denominations that came together, the North and the South, uh, in order to create the present-day PCUSA. And uh, here's its banner, right? Similar, we see some hands, we see a cracked world, we see multicolored cross behind here. But then you also see the symbol for the, the PCUSA. And I want to uh, draw your attention to uh, this page in your packets, right? You see these uh, eight symbols here. This is a very dense image. It looks simple, right? But there's a lot going on. You have a cross, a pulpit, a dove, a fish, a cup, fire, the book, and the Trinity all implied in this one symbol, right? This is busy. This is, this is pretty simple, but you've got a lot going on. If you counted each of the symbols here, there's probably more symbolism going on here in the, than in this. Um, <laughs> So I encourage you to read that on your own. Now, I want to turn to something that is not in the book of confessions. Uh, and the very last page of your packets. And this is, uh, again, this does not come from the book of confessions, but I think is key to a conversation about the confessions. And that is uh, another set of fun words for Scrabble or bananagrams, moralistic, therapeutic deism, uh, also called MTD. And this comes to us out of a book um, by uh, Dr. Christian Smith, a, a few books, and he's a professor of psychology at Notre Dame. And he did a, a national study uh, for, for several, I think it was over two decades, trying to discern what do people believe? Right? Since we're talking about what do we believe, um, it's helpful to know what most people, maybe even some of us, uh, believe just generally. Before we open this book of confessions or open a Bible, what do we generally believe? And he, he narrowed it down to five things. He said, we believe, well, he said, they believe, really. They believe a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. That doesn't sound too bad, right? Except the, the uh, implicit message there is that God watches from afar but isn't involved. We do not believe that. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, right? Yeah, but there's so much more to it. Forgiveness, right? Forgiveness, grace, love. It's not just be about being good and nice and fair. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy. Tell that to Paul in prison, right? Um, Paul was not uh, happy in prison. He was filled with the spirit and surely uh, looking forward to the ministry that God was calling him to, but I don't think that he was uh, necessarily happy about being behind bars. And the central goal of life is also to feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. Just watch 
Just watch any sitcom, right? Uh, and if you, if you ever hear religion mentioned, it's when somebody has cancer, they, there's some issue, there's some, right? Some big thing has happened, and then the person bargains with God. God just, I know I don't talk to you very often. I know it's been a long time. Let me pray to you now. Because that's the only time God's needed, right? When there's an emergency. We don't believe that. The Book of Confessions, we, it would not uphold that. And then number five, most people believe this. Most people believe this. Even people in my own family who are not in the church believe this very line. Good people go to heaven when they die. It's not about how good we are. It's about our faith in Jesus Christ. So I lift this up, and, and you can read the rest of this. There's a lot here in this short little uh, half page, and there's so much more beyond this. Um, but I give this to you because this is what we're fighting against, not just in the world, but in ourselves. Because I'd love to believe that good people go to heaven when they die. But if I am basing my faith on the scriptures and on the book of confessions and, and leaning on the tradition of the church, I can't believe that. So this, I call this the anti-creed, anti-confession. Um, and I'll open for questions in just a moment. Um, and so I offer this to you uh, as a foil for when, when we read this book. When you go home and download or purchase your own book of confessions and read it, put it on your bedside stand and read it, just a page, two, with the, the Bible but when you wake up or go to bed. When you read this, remember this, moralistic therapeutic deism, what we are working against to proclaim in our faith to make sure that when we draw the line in the sand, as the uh, uh, writers of Barman and Belhar did, this is where we stand on Jesus Christ. This is not where we stand. So uh, we have just a few moments, uh, a few minutes left in class. I wanted to uh, remind you, this is available for purchase online, as well as it's free as a download PDF to your phones, if you have a smartphone. If you want to learn more, there's also Presbyterian Creeds by Jack Rogers. It's an older book. I think it's only available in used copies anymore, but it's a great, uh, great resource. There's also a new study edition of the um, Book of Confessions coming out uh, in just about another week. Uh, actually, I think it's coming out tomorrow. Yes, it's coming out tomorrow. So uh, if you wanted, if you don't have this already, but you want a hard copy, Amazon, I think it's October 2nd is the uh, release date. Uh, for a new uh, uh, book of confessions study guide, and it should say, now includes Belhar. Okay, enough talking for me. I saw some hands. I want to answer some questions before we pray and depart. Kent? Uh, the question was, isn't this historically like what Jefferson and... Franklin believed in, um, yeah, so it, it relates to deism and, and, and kind of the beliefs of, of some of the founders of the country, um, but uh, yeah, so there's, there's certain, certainly uh, parallels there, but that's not, not all. Any other questions here? Michael, you've done a wonderful job of teaching us new and important things about our faith. I guess my question is, uh, with the exception perhaps of Barman, aren't most of these confessions bottom up in the sense that they come out of a problem that is sought to be addressed and resolved? Has anybody ever thought about a confession that is top down? that begins with the universal, and most of them end up being written kind of top down, but has anybody ever thought about creating a confession that deals with top down and that all of these issues that we've had are subordinate and addressed by the primacy of the original thought that we had? That's a great question. I think a lot of the people who wrote, as an example, Westminster, they would say, oh yeah, we're, there's a situation going on, but 
we're being told to write this for sake of unifying the church, so we're doing it top down. Um, but I, I think it's, I, I almost think it would be impossible to do a top down. And I say that because no matter what we do, each one of us is historically rooted, right? You were born here in the States, you have a certain cultural worldview, and um, we do not speak Hebrew, we do not speak Greek, so how do we do a top-down confession of holding the whole of scriptures and tradition, but what tradition? Our tradition, the tradition we were born into? um, You know, where does it start, where does it stop? Um, We are all historically rooted. Not sure where he's going, but um, I want to allow time for just uh, one more question here. I would respond to Jack by saying that's dangerous because we all are prisoners of our own experience. Right, right. Certainly so, and that that means that we cannot, um, uh, we cannot then um, break out of our cultural milieu and our cultural uh, understanding of the world. So to do that top-down confession, in my mind, would be really impossible, and we'd have to bring people from every culture in the world. Um, and that's, that's, that's a little off topic, but that's what I love about our modern-day understanding of Scripture, is that it continues to be inspired even in translation. So in co- uh, contradistinction to Westminster, that other cultures, because of their language, read and understand God differently because they speak a different language. And so their, their p- manner of processing scripture and God and conceptualizing of faith is different. And that's okay. Because God didn't just create us, English speakers, he created us all. And so as the Holy Spirit speaks through the scriptures to us all, the inspiration doesn't lie in the text on the page. The inspiration lies in the spirit that speaks through us, right? So that's why I, I don't quite uphold, although I think it's great, that's why I don't quite uphold Westminster's uh, line there. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, it, oh. This, this, is, this is something that I, I kind of hold on to, and I think this is what you're saying. If you use the, the, the concept of tan, when we interpret the Bible, and, and, I, and I felt this way too about our confessions, we have to understand the then, and the now is what so many of us struggle with as to how to apply them. But what I think you're saying is the always, and that's understanding the principles and patterns that are really God, the, the real root. And what you're saying is we need to have more the ant rather than the tan because too much we get it from the top, the, the then. And in most of these we heard today were politically motivated and we tried to put God in them, I think, sometimes to cover it up. But this has been helpful for me to hang on to when I, when I read and, 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 and look at the Bible passages. Thank you, Dan. I so appreciate this model, but I'm going uh, to push back against one thing you said. Um, because I don't think, like the writers of Barman, I don't think that they were trying to push God into the political situation. I think they were trying to say, this is where we stand in this situation. God is here. God is not there. And so I don't think it's an imposition of God. I think it's a really a revealing of where is God in this situation. Um, and that's, that's the beauty. For me, that's the beauty of Barman and Belhar in particular, um, that God is here. God still speaks. God is present. Um, you wouldn't know it if you turn on the news sometimes with all the uh, fighting that's still going on, even today in 2017 United States, but God is here. And it's our job to discern through scripture, through the book of confessions, with, with one another, where is God? Where is God in uh, everything going on in the world? I thank you for your attention. Let us pray before we depart. Almighty God, we are so grateful for your holy word, your son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit that is here among us, binding us together in unity. We pray, Lord, for a continued outpouring of your Holy Spirit to bind us together, 
and to unify us in a common vision and common goal of knowing you better, knowing how better to serve you and to love you, to love neighbor and to serve neighbor. Thank you, God, for all that we have been able to learn this last month. But may uh, these, these things uh, not just be facts. May they not just be in our, in our heads, but may they move to our hearts as we take these ancient words and some new words uh, from your saints throughout the generations as we take them in devotionally and learn to uh, profess you and confess you as Lord. We thank you, God, for this time together and pray that you may use it to your glory in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. One more thing. I will, ch- I will turn your attention, Nicene Creed. When you get there uh, today in service, notice where the parentheses are. That was not intentional, but there are parentheses in the Nicene Creed this week. Hint, it's around the filioque clause. So... <laughs>